0: Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi Seminary, and here we are another week, another episode of Bible Studies. We're calling the Bible for Grownups. We're going to take a step away this week from a study in which we look at a specific uh, topic within Scripture, we look at a specific book of the Bible. We're just going to talk about the Bible in general. Because one of the things... I think uh, that comes up in the challenges of our Christian faith whenever we're trying to speak to other folks about our faith and about what we believe, sometimes the stories in the Bible, the Bible itself becomes a bit of a stumbling block because a lot of folks just don't simply believe that the Bible's accurate and yet we as Christian believers we most certainly believe that the contents of Hebrew Scripture and the Christian Christian Testament, all of it, is true. It contains truth. It is inspired divinely, even if it's done in the cooperation with humankind. But it is divinely inspired. It is something special. So, if that's what we're to allowed to guide our faith, then Scripture should be priceless to us. So what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to talk about just the idea of whether the Bible can be relied upon. Is Scripture reliable? Is the truth, in other words, on the pages, actually, of the Word of God Or are they the opinions, just the opinions of humankind? Well, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to hope to argue that inside the Bible itself, the books contain the truth of our living God. And this evening, today, whenever you're listening, I'd like to tell you why. And to do so, I'd like for us to actually turn to the New Testament, Christian Scripture, to the second, the the letter... Second letter of Timothy, verses 3, 16, and 17. The Bible says of itself this. Scripture says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible says of itself that it is God-breathed. The word God-breathed, it comes from the Greek uh, Greek word, theonuosist, uh, and it remains divinely breathed. It means given the inspiration by God. Theo, we got theology, the study of God. Numa, it means spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for correction, for training, for rebuking. God's word will give you, will give me everything that we need to fulfill everything that God will call us to do. But is it God's word? Again, I believe that it is. And so, let's start tonight by looking at some facts about the Bible. Now, the Bible is an incredibly interesting book. Let's talk about some of the facts. Facts number one. The book is the best-selling book in the history of the world. In fact, number two, you may have heard this. Now, it's also the result of the fact that it is the most-selling book in the world. It's in the most bookstores in the world, in all fairness. But the book, Holy Scripture, is also the most shoplifted book in the world. Now, truthfully, the Bible isn't one book. It's actually 66 different books wrapped into one. And the Bible, 66 books, in my version, the the, the NIV, the one I like to preach out of, it actually contains 773,692 words. And it would take the average person about 70 hours to read the book aloud. Now, what's amazing about the Bible, the Bible's written by all sorts of different people. It's written by politicians, by statesmen, by farmers, by shepherds, by peasants, by musicians, by poets, even by tax collectors. The Bible's also written from many, many different places. The Bible was written historically by Moses in the wilderness and by Jeremiah in the dungeon. It was written by Luke while traveling, Paul while he was in prison. It was written by John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. This book, it was written from 13 different countries on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And what's amazing is, even though the Bible was written from people from all different walks of life, and over the span of about 1,500 years, it has amazing accuracy and consistency when it comes to the message about the character, the nature of God, and God's plan for humankind. The Bible is the word of God. Not only is it consistent, true, and inspired, but it also speaks to a many a different topics that we encounter in the human experience. Topics in scripture include everything from marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery, sex, lust, greed, guilt, materialism, generosity, healing, hope, forgiveness, parenting, prayer, friendship, pride, obedience, heaven, hell, lying, murder, suicide, rape, fears, doubts, miracles, love, hate, money, criticism, creation, government, submission, rebellion, peace, leadership, Comparisons, joy, discontentment, patience, faithfulness, enjoying life, self-control, disasters, injustice, demons, angels, discipleships, discipleships, uh, uh, disciplines, fasting, honor, caring for the poor, handling the well, family, and even cats. Well. It actually doesn't speak about cats, but it does speak about the devil, and that's that's pretty much the same thing. So we're here to talk about the reliability of the Bible, so let's talk for a few minutes about the Bible's reality. And what I want to pose is a question, but in three parts. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible true? And is the Bible accurate? Or... Is it simply just the opinions of a whole bunch of different people? Well, in 1952, there was a historian named Steve Sanders who came up with three specific tests to evaluate the authenticity of historical writings. So, let's put the Bible to his test. Three specific tests. The first is known as the internal test. Now, what is the internal test regarding the Bible? The internal test wants to answer the question, do the writers of the Bible claim that their writings are true? Basically, do the people who are writing the story, are, are, are they acknowledging, hey, what I'm writing, it's just a story? I just I just made it up. Or, no, I was there. I saw it. And this, what I'm writing, is accurate. In fact, we find in the second epistle of Peter in Christian scripture, the first chapter in 16th verse, Peter said this. He said, we do not follow, rather we did not follow, cleverly invented stories where, when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were, this is important, eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, I was there. I saw it. I experienced Jesus and his majesty firsthand. I saw it. Peter is saying, what I'm telling you, what I'm writing down, I want you to know that I know it's absolutely true. Now, when was this Christian Testament written? Well, it was, uh, I'm going to argue, it was written uh, between the years maybe 47 and 95 AD. So, there are plenty of first generation believers alive who saw firsthand all of the Bible that the Bible was talking about. And, they could have at any time refuted what was being said in scripture. At any time, there would have been plenty of first generation encounters of the events that could have spoken up and said, yes, this is all made up. But instead, instead of saying, no, no, this isn't true, No, they didn't say that. They said, no, this is exactly what motivates us. Not only do we know it and believe it to be true, we are allowing our lives to be changed as a result of that reality. Now, let's talk about another very important test. This one's called the external test. What is external testing? Testing. Well, external testing wants to answer the question, what does the outside evidence say about the Bible? In other words, what do non-biblical sources say about the Bible? Do they confirm biblical stories? Or or do these contemporary commentators, commentators say, this, this isn't true. This isn't true. I've lived there. I know that this is all made up. Well, first of all, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the historiosity of Jesus Christ is incredibly well established. You can read all sorts of non-biblical writings about Jesus of Nazareth. You can read Roman writers, Greek writers, and from Jewish sources where people affirm the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Not only that, But the first century historian, Josephus, he wrote about Jesus. And he not only wrote about Jesus, he wrote about John the Baptist. And he wrote about James. And he wrote about all sorts of other leaders in the proto, the very beginning parts of what would become the church, the leaders of that early church that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. Now you might say, okay, So we've obviously got other historical writings that affirm so much of what's happening in the Bible, but what about archaeology? Well, truthfully, for years, many Bible critics actually discredited the Bible because they said archaeological discoveries simply just don't support Scripture. And in many cases, I'll be honest, they had a valid statement. But... In the 20th century, we find all sorts of archaeological finds. Many of these claims, actually, to discredit the Bible, have now been reversed. Now, here's the absolute truth: what I what I personally believe. Right, while we cannot accurately say that archaeologically completely and fully proves the authority of the Bible, it is fair to say that archaeological evidence has provided external confirmations for literally hundreds of statements of truth that we find in the Bible. Over and over and over and over again, we are now finding archaeological discoveries that confirm truth of what Scripture says. In fact, I love what Nelson Gluick says. He's the former uh, president of the Jewish Theological Ceremony, one of the a seminary one of the great all-time archaeologists he says this and i think for me this is uh, this is completely comfortable with where i am at and it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been produced to controvert biblical reference now If you're a believer and you're hoping that we're going to conclude the Bible is reliable, that is very, very good news when we put the Bible to the external test. Let's talk about the third test. It's called the bibliographical test. What does a bibliographical test try to accomplish? It wants to find out how well the original documents translated today. For example there's only one original manuscript, right? Then people made copies of them. That's what keeps them from being original. And sometimes, sometimes they'd make tons of copies. Sometimes they wouldn't make very many copies of these books at all. Now, let's talk about how copies were made in Hebrew scripture. And I think this is even more conclusive if you ask me. First of all, what's amazing is that they would actually count up the graphs, the letters, the the tick marks, all of it in Hebrew scripture, and they would find right the 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 amount of the, of Hebrew scripture, and then when a whole manuscript would have been completed, if they were to go back and look through there and find the smallest, I mean sincerely, one mistake at all then the uh, manuscript would be burned, be destroyed. Now let's continue to talk about the uh, copies of Hebrew and Christian scripture together, what we call the the Holy Bible. Again, in Hebrew scripture, there are very, very few copies, right? Because they would either wear out or they would be ceremonially buried or they'd be destroyed if imperfections were found. So, because of this, for centuries, the most reliable, the most well-respected Hebrew manuscript was known as the Masoretic Text. Now, here is the amazing part of the story. The amazing part of the story is that in the year 70 AD, the Romans were attacking the Jewish people in Judea. They're trying to destroy their culture, they were also especially trying to, store, uh, to destroy their religious heritage. So these Jewish people took their scrolls and they put them in bottles and they hid them somewhere, most likely in caves. And for about 1800 years, these historic writings, the biblical scrolls, remained completely hidden. Then in the year 1947, a Bedouin shepherd stumbled upon some of the old bottles. And said inside what he found became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, archaeologists then went and discovered 11 other sources additionally of ancient scrolls. So what's amazing is when you compare what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Masoretic text, the accuracy is actually stunning. So, let's wrestle with the question. How accurate are biblical copies? Well, let's compare the Bible to some other historical writings. For example, in high school, you might have read the Odyssey or the Iliad by Homer. The Iliad by Homer is the most accepted non-biblical historical writing that we have. How many copies do you think that we have of the Iliad? Well, we have 643 copies of the Iliad, and that would have been considered a ton. And none of them actually verified as original. Other historical writings, you might have heard of Plato's Republic. It has seven copies. Aristotle has five. Caesar has 10 so the most accepted non-biblical historical writing would unquestionably be the writing of Homer, with 643 copies remaining. How many, how many uh, copies of original manuscripts, early editions of uh, New Testament manuscripts, do you think that we have? Well, not 643, not a thousand but over 24,000 copies of of Christian scripture. When you compare that, 24,000, verse 643, when you compare that to any other historical writing that humankind has presented beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Bible stands alone, unquestionably, passing the bibliographic test with flying colors. Now, let me ask you as we move into the next section. Hey, listen, if you've made it this far, first of all, thanks for making it this far. I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope you'll enjoy this second half, but I'd just like to take one second just to ask if you could do me a favor. If you are enjoying the semi-seminarian, if you like what we're doing here, if you could, if you could like us, whatever platform, if you're on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher or whatever your platform is, if you could like us and follow us. And if you have the opportunity to maybe give us a review like on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly really appreciate it. That really helps get the Bible study message out to better to more people because of the algorithm stuff. I don't really understand it all, but I've been told it helps. So if you could help me, I would certainly appreciate it. Listen. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. We're going to go right back to our story. Now, how many of you like predict predicting what's going on in a movie? Cuz I do. You know, he did it, she did it. It's going to go this way. <clears throat> I love predictions. And when I read scripture, one of the things that amazes me most to see in Hebrew scripture as a Christian believer are predictions that we call prophecies. Think about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the Hebrew scripture would prophesy or predict what would take place either in Christian Testament times or even centuries later, maybe In modern times, maybe still in the future. And people would say, hey, this is going to happen. And we Christian believers believe many of those things actually did happen. And many of those things will continue to happen. I want in just a few moments to show you uh, some of the prophecies that we Christian believers find fulfilled in Hebrew scriptures about the character of Jesus of Nazareth. One of the dozens and dozens of prophecies, there was a group. It was actually, this is, you guys are going to love this. (laughs) I think. There was a professor by the name of Peter Stoner. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine going through your whole life with your name Stoner? Then being a professor and being Dr. Stoner? Well, anyway, imagine uh, he took uh, 12 of his classes including 600 students, and they wanted to see what the likelihood of some of these prophecies would be if they were actually fulfilled, like in probability terms. For example, it would be prophesied that Jesus would be born at Bethlehem. And so, about the time of Jesus' birth, what were the odds of a person born in Bethlehem? They put a number to it. Well, they did this with eight specific prophecies of Jesus. Then they turned in their numbers to this group of people, kind of governing board of statistics, who gave their stamp of approval, and they said, yes, these statistics are accurate, they're acceptable, the methods in which these numbers were calculated are legitimate. And they took eight of them, and they put them together, and they said, what are the odds of these eight specific things happening to one particular individual? And let me tell you, let me say this slowly. The odds were just one and ten with 17 zeros behind it. That would be the chances of eight specific prophecies of the dozens being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. One in ten with 17 zeros behind it. Now, you might say, and I don't blame you, what does any of that mean? Okay, so what's the likelihood of that actually happening? And I found an illustration that I think, I hope that you might absolutely be able to envision. Okay, so let's put a visual to 10 with 17 zeros behind it. It would be, imagine uh, a silver dollar. Imagine taking that silver dollar with a Sharpie pen and marking a big, big red X on that one specific silver dollar, and then dropping it somewhere, anywhere within the geographical boundaries of the entire state of Texas, okay? It could be around Austin, it could be Lubbock, Dallas, Houston, Beaumont, anywhere in Texas, in a field, on a highway, in a city, anywhere at all. And then dumping two feet of silver dollars over the entire state of Texas. All over Texas. And there's only one coin in those, in the entire, of all of them, only one coin in the two feet of sil- silver dollars covering the whole state. And then blindfolding one person and saying, go find it. And you can wander, you can walk, you can walk anywhere you want. You can walk for days, weeks, months, you can walk for years if you want to, all over the geographical boundaries of the state of Texas. When you realize that you might be there, you reach down blindfolded in two feet of coins and pull up with one shot the exact right one the chances of you being able to do that would be about the same as these eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So, in a few moments, I'd just like to show you a few of them. I want you to feel the power. I want you to feel the emotion. Pay very, very careful attention to the words that are prophesied years and years, uh, hundreds of years, before it actually became true in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at a few of the prophecies that we Christian believers that God fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied in Isaiah 7 that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to the son. And in the first chapter of Matthew, that was fulfilled. Micah chapter 5 prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It was fulfilled in Matthew 2. Prophecy of Isaiah, the, the 11th chapter of his prophecy says Jesus would be anointed by the Spirit. That's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. See your king comes to you, righteous, and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. And in the 12th chapter, the Apostle John's gospel message, it was so. Psalm 41 said Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, even my close friend whom I Trusted has lifted his heel against me. And in the 26th chapter of Matthew, that prophecy was fulfilled. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Hebrew scripture said that Jesus would be silent before his accusers. The Christian Testament showed this prophecy to come true. Isaiah 50 said that the Messiah would one day be beaten and spat upon. Matthew 26 shows this horrible prophecy to become accurate. Concerning Jesus, we Christian believers believe in Psalm 22, said they would one day cast lots for his clothing. And in John 19, that was fulfilled. Psalm 118 showed that one day he would rise again. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And we find in the 16th chapter of the Gospel account, according to Mark, that coming true. And some of these things that we think about, that we've learned, that we've been challenged with, Right? First of all, we, we, we've learned that the Hebrew Scripture, the Christian Testament, you might think of them as the Old the New Testament. Well, it has a total of 40 authors, right? And so, as they began to sit down, they began to write the words of God. If you take all these books and you cross-reference them, what you're going to find is absolute 100% congruity. Now, There is a big, big difference in congruity and an idea of moral consistency. Because friends, the Hebrew scripture and the Christian scripture are both a product of a relationship between the divine and humankind. And the implications of which are that there is much of the Bible that is do not go and do likewise. And I think that's often where people stumble because they believe that every action that we find in the characters of the Bible is the right and true action. And that's not always the case. Often, we find heroes in Scripture still being human, still trying to take matters into their own hands, still not trying to rely on God, still not having a faith that will endure. And those stories are there, not that we are to mimic them, We are to learn from them. So there's really nothing that conflicts. It's interesting. So when you think about the fact that they all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, they all wrote them at different times, different seasons, different audiences, and yet it's still all congruent. We've also learned that there are multiple prophecies in God's word, and that when God began to speak, to the authors, the human authors of Holy Scripture, and they set down to write the actual words of God and what it was that God had breathed into them. What they did was they set down to write it and they were predicting future events that we believe have come true. With 100% accuracy, at least so far and I would argue that that doesn't happen unless God is involved in driving the process we've also learned that there out of all of these authors, all of the people that have taken this test, they've reproduced it, the people have sacrificed their time these authors have sacrificed their families literally at points in time they have sacrificed their lives why? So that we, you, me, could have the Bible in our hands. So it's a gift. So my question is, as we have a reliable source of God's interaction with humankind into the world, we have that readily available to us. We have to ask ourselves, what are you going to do with it? Matthew chapter 24, 35 says, heaven and hell, sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What that verse is saying is that we spend a significant amount of time on things that are going to pass away. And if you were honest with yourself right now, you'd say, yeah, that's pretty accurate. We spend time reading magazines like People Magazine, maybe the National Enquirer, although we probably never admit to it actually, and probably not you, good people, but you know people like that. Right? Spend a lot of time watching television. The reality is, as much of what we spend our time on, it says those are the things that are going to pass away, and the only thing that's going to remain with us from now. Until eternity is God's truth, God's word. So my question is, what are we going to do with the gift that God's given us? Psalm 119 and verse 11, King David says, I have hidden your word in my heart. And it's what King David, a perfect example of a guy who is do not mostly, do not go and do likewise. What he does do that we should do is he challenges us to take it and literally download it, to to hide it in our heart, to conceal it deep into the core of who we are so that we can begin to see the transformation in our lives as it comes forward. One of the points of the Bible for Grown Ups study series that I'm one of the arguments I'm trying to make with all of this friend is I want us to become more than just readers of the Bible. We need to intentionally take God's word and download it, allow it to transform, to change us. And we know, we know that this is what God wants us to do. We know this is what God calls us to do. So we're trained from a young age, right? To take God's word and put it down in our lives. And I, look, as I look back on my own personal journey as a Christ follower, let me tell you what I see. I see moments of absolute consistency in my life. In my life. You can look back on a time when you were hungry, when you were reading God's word and it was changing you and it was making you new. If you've had that Christian experience, you know what I was talking about. You allowed the truth of God's reliable word to actually do something in your life. It was transforming you and things began to become rich and you were growing. And many times we also have seasons of inconsistency, times when we're not downloading God's word, times when we're not setting aside in our day to take God's word, to study it. Many times, many times when we do that, Right, It leads us to a spiritual desert. And you might be there right now. It's been a long time since you've connected to God. Since you've really dove in to a reliable source of God's truth for humankind and allow it to change you. And what blows me away, and we all know this, right? We know what God does in our life when we dive into God's word. He changes us. God transforms us, makes us new. Our thinking straightens out. He picks up above our circumstances. He picks us up above our challenges. So we know on this hand what it is that God does in our lives when we're really diving into God's truth. So my question, friend, is knowing that, do we continue to neglect God's word? Hey friend, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the semi-seminary. And I think it's it's a significant thing in our world today because I think so many Christians, people that call themselves Christians, people people that with good hearts want to be, think of themselves as Christians, but find themselves rudderless because, because they haven't decided whether the rudder that's on their boat is reliable or not. Something has come across... In their experience, it's called life. And we have this experience where where we just take scripture at face value. Just as a simple reader. We don't really dive in to the truth contained within the story. Some of those stories encouraging us forward. Others reminding us of a warning that comes with the consequence of sin diving into those stories and allowing those stories to actually have an impact on our life. And we're robbed. We're robbed of the spiritual Christian experience because somewhere along the line, we've, we've just decided that what we can learn from God's word isn't reliable. And I hope that this episode has shown you, friend, But that's simply not true. Anyway, it's something to think about. And until next week, I hope you're blessed. Be well.